Good morning or afternoon, wherever you are. Welcome to Distant Poets Society. In our Hamilton episode, I misnamed it because I wasn't paying attention and I don't have a script. But in the case of today, welcome to the next episode of Distant Poets Society, uh, summer edition, where we're not reading, we're watching. And today we watched Knives Out, a wonderful movie um, directed by Ryan Johnson and starring a bunch of people that you probably know from other things. But Today we have Miss Ramirez, as always, Miss Rodriguez, as always, and we have a special guest. Um, you know him, you love him, you see him in the hallway in the English wing at Warren High School. We have Mr. Jesus Santos, the ELL specialist and LPAC coordinator. And if you don't know what those things are, he helps you if English is not your primary first language. Mr. Santos, welcome to the show. Yay. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> All right, like Mr. Smith said, we are going to talk about Knives Out. And Knives Out, if you haven't watched it, is a detective film. So I'm going to give you like a, a general summary that doesn't spoil anything to get you interested. And then I highly recommend you stop the podcast and watch it because the first watch of this film is so exciting. I tried to predict the ending and I never got it right. Um, so <clears throat> according to Amazon Prime, where it's streaming, it says when renowned crime novelist Harlan Thrombey is found dead at his estate, the inquisitive detective Benoit Blanc is mysteriously enlisted to investigate. From Harlan's dysfunctional family to staff, Blanc sifts through a web of red, red herrings and self-serving lies to uncover the truth behind Harlan's untimely death. So this is your time to stop and watch the film <laughs> because that first time is so exciting. Um, but just so we have everything cleared up as we talk about the details of the film, just as a refresher, moving on, to expose the ending, Harlan's nurse and friend, Marta, believes that she's guilty of uh, Harlan's murder because she accidentally gave Harlan the wrong doses of medicine and she couldn't find the life-saving antidote um, and there was no time for an ambulance and so he dies. Harlan uses his writing skills to hide her action and slits his own throat before she can stop him. Marta has a condition where she cannot lie, so when she's recruited by Blanc to help, then help investigate, she struggles to hide the real truth. There's more pressure added to her as Harlan changed his will and left everything to her, cutting his entire family out of his fortune. Driven by greed, Harlan's family turns on her, trying to find a way to pin the murder on her so the wealth, their wealth would be returned. Eventually, she confesses, but new evidence suggests that there's more to the story. Harlan's grandson, Ransom, which is just the wildest name, switched the liquids and the medication vials to kill his grandfather because of the changes to his will. Marta never gave Harlan the wrong medicine. She didn't even read the labels because she knew the liquid so well. And it was discovered that Harlan was never really going to die. Marta ends up with the thromby fortune and Harlan's family is left with nothing. So crazy movie. The first guiding question, social and historical context. What is the social and historical context of the selection? It's now. It is now. It's very now. I mean, yeah. it's it's really funny that um, that we're doing this after our Hamilton episode because there's a there's a line where one of the characters is like immigrants they get the job done and he like smiles yeah. and was like like you know what I'm talking about it's, it's from Hamilton right you like Hamilton mm -hmm. yeah I think um, it was the husband of uh, what's Jamie Linder the guy from John Curtis. Don Johnson mm -hmm. Yes, Richard said that. Um, so it's it's now they have a really familiar argument about immigration that we we still discuss today. They talked about um, the actual immigration policy that's in, in effect. I think the physical setting is something that is not as relatable. It takes place on an estate. So like a lot of land and a mansion. Um, and it was filmed in Boston. I don't know if it was supposed to have taken place um, 
in Massachusetts, but you know, it's, it's on the East coast in a very like wealthy area. But Marta, um, Harlan's nurse appears to live in like an apartment or a town home. Um, but really most of the story takes place in that huge estate. I, and I, although the, what's it called? The, although the climate of the present day is played out in a bunch of different ways throughout the, throughout the, the story. Um, I think that one of the places where it's most acutely seen is the juxtaposition of Meg, one of the granddaughters, and Jacob, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, one, one of the grandsons, right? You know, Meg is, I can't remember the way Jamie Lee Curtis's character, you know, uh, derisively describes her major, but essentially she's, she's, she's at, uh, what's it called? She's at college studying some type of either cultural studies or feminist studies that's rooted in some type of, of critical theory. I mean, I think she calls her a neo-Marxist. But, um, and on the other side, Jacob is, uh, what's it called? Necessarily a fair comment, I'm just using uh, the character's word. Um, Jacob is a, um, I think she calls him, uh, I think her, right I think troll. Meg calls him an alt-right troll, that's right. Um, <laughs> And, and and his dialogue kind of reveals some of that. You know, he calls Marta a, a anchor dirty baby. anchor baby. I was like, wow, bro. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, I, you know, I, I don't think it's representative of the entire population. However, I think it's representative of the, of the type of polemic that gets sensationalized in our in our society so much that it seems to the public like those are the only two types of people that exist right when in fact i, I don't think that's true there's plenty in between mm -hmm. well and we can move on the characters because i think the characters really demonstrate the social and historical context um i think <laughs> the thromby, no 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 worries i think the thrombing family as a whole tries to represent all the versions in between the very far left of Meg and the very far right of Jacob. I think you see, um, especially with that conversation about immigration. So you see Richard who earlier was like immigrants, we get the job done and um, talks about how hardworking Marta is, but then he talks about, well, immigrants are, they're doing it wrong. You have to do it right. And so if you don't do it right, you're gonna be treated poorly. Come here, Marta, tell me about your experience with immigration. And then he never even stops talking. And then you have um, Joni who, she has to be like a caricature of Gwyneth Paltrow. Is she not? Absolutely, 100%. She, That's she, hilarious. About children in cages, but like, you know, it's just like everybody's kind of saying the things that they hear on the media and like wherever they fall within the spectrum. Everybody has an opinion, but nobody really does anything. Well, which is a true reflection. I'm oh, sorry, which is a true reflection of an American family at the big holiday dinners. Like I think we've all been there when politics comes up at the Thanksgiving, you know, family reunion and it's like, oh, everybody starts cringing because these ideas are just gonna go back and forth within your own family. I, I reminded me of that. Joni's kind of interesting. I think Joni's super interesting. Um, I mean, she owns, she like the rest of them, she owns some type of company, right? That obviously was subsidized by Flam. by by Harlan, right? And Flam. And yeah. I, 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 it struck me so much that I wrote down the, the line. She says, when she's talking to the investigator, she's like, oh yeah, Flam, self-sufficiency with an acknowledgement of human need, which the way she said it sounded like the fakest 
attempt at social justice-ing a company that I had ever heard of in my life. Like I was like, wow, Absolutely. girl. Um, but yeah, uh, but but the problem is, right? At least I think the, um, the the impression that they're that they're trying to give is it seems like Joni believes her own why I don't I don't I mean I I hate to call somebody out that bad, but like I think I you know uh, Joni believes that she is truly somebody who's looking out for other people uh, on on a micro and macro scale and. You know, from from the way the narrative plays out, it, it's 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 hard for the audience to buy that. Oh, they're right. all out for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> all of these characters have like different have different like success stories. They all think they're successful, and then they judge all the other family members. Like um, like Linda, she's the self made like her father, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. But then her own son is like she got a million dollar loan from her father. She can't like. She can't go around saying she's better than Walt, who was given the publishing company and runs that under his father's direction. Like they're all in the same situation. And then they all also think they're so much better than everybody else morally. But the minute they're cut out of the will, they attack, they attack Marta. Like what doesn't matter where they fall on the political spectrum. It doesn't matter what they think. Even Meg, who is so understanding. Even uh, and her mother's undocumented status and how, you know, she has a personal relationship with Marta and she flips on her just to try to get what they think is theirs back, which was never really theirs. It was, it was Harlan. He was the self-made millionaire, billionaire. I don't know how mm -hmm. many he, he had. But I, I think he had $80 million. Yeah. I think the wolf said something I, like 60 or whatever. And he cuts the financial umbilical cord from all of them. Like that's. <laughs> and that's how he framed it too, right? I mean, yeah. I want you to build something from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, the, I, I was talking with, uh, with Mr. Smith. Um, when was it? Last night or the night before? You know, and I, 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 I kind of told him like, okay, look, aside from this whole thing being a, a, a critique on the myth of the self-made man, I don't know what else I'm going to talk about. <laughs> and I was kind of worried. I was a little intimidated. I'm like, dude, that's the only thing I picked out of this. And then he reassured me. He's like, well, that's the point. What I mean, and just, you know, just because that's the big thing that you see doesn't mean that it's not done in a sophisticated way. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that comments on the idea of immigration and the American dream, like specifically with Of Mice and Men, we teach that um, to our sophomores to talk about, is the American dream a myth? Can you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? And we've seen Harlan do it, but even his own children don't feel like they can do it. And so then we can't expect every person to do that. Like Marta, from what it appears, was born in America because her mother immigrated um, not, not formally. Right. I don't, I, they, they didn't give enough background. We just know she's undocumented, but Marta is a citizen and everybody seems to think that she did it so well. She's so hardworking, but I mean, she just happened to be born in this country and then she's a very good nurse. Like, well, she, and then I love that contrast that Marta is, she's the only true hardworking character. Yep. Right? And they, they contrast so well with, so you have all the family members who are only successful because of his father's wealth. I wrote it down somewhere, but Marta clearly 
like she was she was such a good nurse that she could tell the medications without looking at the labels they're just slightly different but she knew it so well um and none of none of the the thrombies could do anything like that other than harlan he was a successful writer and he was talented there um i do think that ransom probably has a little bit more on the um he's he's very like cutthroat i mean they they, they even say in the movie that he is very similar to um to the deceased. well he's really smart yeah. because he's the one that he planned harlan's murder and he switched the liquids in the vials and once marta starts telling the story he knew exactly what happened he knew that Harlan never really died, well, never really should have died. And he knew how to cover up everything really, really quick. And that was really impressive. He was a lot like Harlan and they said that, but he's also, he's described very frequently as an asshole. And that was his problem because Harlan was a, a, yeah. a kind person from what we saw, uh, maybe not to his his immediate family, but um, yeah, I think- And he hires Ben on Blanc, right? Yeah. He does. Uh, he was the one that uh, hired the private investigator. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, he's not a very nice guy. I mean, he, you know, he refers to the help as the help in front of their faces. You know, he, uh, he calls Ben, I don't know if he's talking to Benoit Blanc or to the lieutenant, but he's like, what is this, CSI, KFC? Like, you know, he's, <laughs> he's talking about Benoit, Benoit Blanc. Times, um, because he's got the accent, which I can't really tell where the accent uh, that's right. is from. Um, I think it's supposed to be Louisiana. I mean, I'm, I'm presumed that because of his last name. Okay. Oh, yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, Which is a great play in alliteration, his name, Benoit Blanc. And I looked up the name Benoit, it means the one who says good. So it comes from the name Benedict, which is interesting. It also, interesting. another translation of it is, is blessed. Mm -hmm. um, right? And I'm glad you picked up on that because every time I hear a foreign like language name in a character name, I'm like, uh, I oftentimes think it's intentional. And oftentimes it is. And I don't know if it is. But I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah, it, it, the, this guy's the, the the blessed man or the benevolent man, right? Um, mm -hmm. Kind of like almost mm -hmm. kind of like Benvolio in in uh, in um, in Romeo and Juliet, and I think both translations work equally well as a as a, as a commentary on the character or how people would view a character like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to look too far into it because I don't know the writer's intention. I don't want to. What's the word? Commit eisegesis where you're reading something into the text that's not there. I feel like we probably do that all the time, but it's okay. <laughs> like, guys, Lord of the Flies is about Marxism. Wait, what? No. <laughs> um, but what I liked about Benoit Blanc, I didn't. I didn't pick up on his name. I didn't even like think about it. Um, I liked that his whole philosophy on his not detective work because he's not an official detective was just like I just discovered the truth like he it's this idea that like the truth is always out there and I just put together the pieces instead of like he mentions that like the detectives will like dig and try to find something that's not really there to like solve the case and Benoit is just he just he's just like a truth discoverer which is what he does well, he has this line that says something like, I, mean, I can't remember it verbatim, but he says, you know, a series of facts can veil the truth. I, I don't remember the, but, but, you know, the impression is that you can present a series of facts to tell a story that in and of, in and of itself is not true. Where the, mm -hmm. where, where the individual, individual facts might be true, but, but, it, but it's still going to hide something. I think, well, that's exactly what Marta does uh -huh. because she can't lie because she, she vomits every time she lies. Mm -hmm. And so, does she tells all these little truths she tells like half truths or like you know 
Um, I felt like, oh, sorry. I felt like Benoit's revelation of that was like a manifesto when he was meeting with Nana Winetta and he was talking to her and he said, he was describing like how he's the first to offer her comfort. And then he apologizes to her for presuming the worst about her family and then describes them as they're young, aren't they? He says something to that extent. And it's like, he's actually saying that all of them in that family are very immature and maybe just one-sided and into their own selves where they're not be even being apologetic to her. And then he says that about the truth, what he does with it. I thought that was an awesome segment of the movie. Yeah, I really enjoy the scene where I think it's it's either the first or the second time that Benoit and Marta are talking and they talk about Gravity's Rainbow, which mm -hmm. is this like very piece of, it's like a piece of pretentious uh, uh, literature. And they're like, I've never read it. Oh, me either. But, but <laughs> the, the, the whole idea is that if you walk to the end uh, of where the rainbow is supposed to end, you're, you're going to, to see um, the uh, truth. And so I think that kind of connects into the idea that Benoit is able to link all these truths together, even in the climax of the movie where um, they go back to the house after, after Fran gets caught uh, or after they find Fran overdosed on morphine, then um, he's like, well, the, everything fits, but there's still something missing. And I love that. The, the, hole, the hole of the donut. Yeah. 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 The, there's, there's like a donut, but then the donut hole goes inside of the donut hole, but that still leaves a space. So there's a hole inside of the donut hole. And mm -hmm. I think the yeah. first time, like you, you're obviously laughing because it's a very ridiculous um, scene. But the cool thing about watching a mystery movie the second time is that you already know how it's going to end. So you go back and look and see like, oh, I get this now. Oh, I get this now. And so the, the entire time I was really trying to pick up on how I could figure out that Ransom was was the murderer. And mm -hmm. I couldn't, and, and you can't really, but I, I do think that, you know, it's very interesting where Ryan Johnson kind of creates this idea like, Hey, this person is dead. Hey, these are all the rules that I'm going to set up. So the, the idea that he makes Marta unable to lie, the idea mm -hmm. that um, they all had a motive to kill him, or at least a motive to be upset with, with, with Thrombi. I think that, that by setting all of those rules, he's like, all right, so this is what the, the, the playing board looks like. Now, can you figure it out on your own? And I think that the most important thing is that it's cool when he switches and it shows us what happened. So that way we have to really figure out like, or at, at first there, there's nothing to really figure out. So we, we see that, that he slits his own throat. And so, you know, there really isn't a case there, but then mm -hmm. yeah. the whole thing gets turned on its head because we're, because the, the entire time that you're watching, uh, watching it the first time, you want Marta to get away with it. You, you, you want like her to be okay because as you look at all these other characters, they're all horrible, horrible people and well, <laughs> varying degrees. But um, I think that that is, is really, really well conveyed through the cinematography. Like I, I love when um, Lakeith Stanfield, who plays one of the detectives, uh, who's uh, just like in everything, uh, he mm -hmm. was in like, Straight out of Compton as Snoop Dogg. He was in. He's in Atlanta. He's in. Um, Sorry to bother you, which is I, another amazing, super weird movie. Um, that movie was really good. It's full of magical realism. It's really, really good. I watched that recently. Yeah. Um, and so I, I always, I always like how he's able to kind of like disappear into his roles, and he doesn't really get a lot to do in this movie, which makes me kind of sad. But 
um, it's still important that he's there, and it's nice to have like a uh, he he plays the uh, straight man to to the assistant detective who's kind of like like oh Trooper Wagner, he's so funny. he is really funny. <laughs> He's, he's so he's, enthusiastic because he's a mystery. He reader. reminds me yeah, of. Uh, I love the books. He reminds me of the 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 deputy sheriff on Monk. If you guys ever uh, watched that show, I watched that in a long time. Um, I watched Monk in a long time. You know, kind of a little, kind of you know, kind of dorky, but but still, yeah. you know, an effective uh, an, an effective law enforcement officer. And he shushes somebody as the truth is being. He's like shh because he wants to hear. <laughs> Like, it's a fan. It's a in the middle of a climax, whatever Marta pukes on Chris Evans, yeah, that means she's lying. <laughs> like, yeah, we, we all got that. Trooper Wagner was really um, good. I have to appreciate though, because I love Lucky Stanfield. I have to appreciate that he wasn't the he wasn't the like the comedic relief as oftentimes you see in like police duos that usually cast a black police officer who becomes the comedic relief. I, I appreciate like the flop there. You don't normally see it. I just like Trooper Rag Wagner was, he wasn't a detective, I don't think. I think he was just like a state trooper that got called oh, in. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. Like the security yeah, detail uh, or whatever. Detective. Which pushes like the lines of the caricature where all of them could be, but it's like, I know a state trooper. I've never heard a state trooper referred to as trooper, you know, trooper yeah. Santos or trooper Smith. <laughs> Am I dumb um, for assuming his first name was Trooper? Because <laughs> I'm pretty ashamed right um, now. What's it called? I, I, I like that. I like that nobody comes out unscathed. You know what I mean? In terms of their 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 moral uh, high ground or whatever, their moral status, excuse me. Even yes. Benoit Blanc, who's the consultant, who got, uh, Joni calls him one of the last of the gentleman's sleuths, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. even him. Yeah. Throws, throws out that line as a self-made man myself. I have to express my admiration for how you followed in your father's footsteps, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right, bro. You know, so even even he shows a little bit of a lack of self-examination. Definitely. And even my, uh, the, 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 the main character, the, you know, uh, moments, mistakes you know where she commits moral mistakes i mean you know truly she should have just gone straight to the police and yada 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 despite the fact no, that marley did that 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 she did do, do that other and of course he shows himself to she shows herself to be pretty selfless at the end when she when she saves uh it fran uh i can't remember who fran, uh yeah. right yeah you know she she's she's fat she uh, like uh like you all said she kind of puts together, weaves together the series of half truths also. So like, I think everybody gets put, really appreciate this when books and any other narrative does this, you know, they position everybody in a very human, nobody comes out innocent kind of way. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I kind of disagree that I think Marta was the only like moral character Yes, she lies about her involvement in Harlan's death, but she does it to protect someone other than herself, whereas everybody else is trying to protect themselves. And I think evidence of that is the fact that the writer, Ryan Johnson, gave her that the the vomiting at lying. So she becomes, I, I was looking up some like criticism and someone described that she possesses a supernatural purity. And so she can't really right. do anything wrong because she's, she would expose herself. And then she's also been conditioned her entire life to always be truthful and always have to do 
the right thing. And so when she's doing her half truths, it's not out of her own self-interest. She knows she'll be fine. She's worried about her mother. I, I would right. agree with what you're saying, mm -hmm. definitely. I think maybe a better way to frame what I was trying to say is that they are showing her humanity. Um, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, whereas there are plenty of narratives, usually they're poorly crafted, where that doesn't happen. Now, if we're going to talk about narrative, um, I really want to kind of go back to, because we all love stories. We like stories that make sense. We like stories that make us happy, stories that frighten us, stories that um, make us believe in something bigger than any one person could. And I think that you kind of get that from this cast. I mean, you have um, Christopher Plummer playing Harlan Thrombey, who is, I mean, a pedigree actor. Wonderful. Ana Diarmas, who plays Marta, who I haven't really seen her in anything else, but she is by far. The new Blade Runner movie. What, what now? Isn't the new Blade Runner movie? Oh, okay. She was in a TV Netflix series uh, or Netflix movie. She was in Sergio, and it's one about uh, like Cuban gun runners. I think Cuban. I think she's Cuban. She American. Cuban. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's Cuban, and she was also in a <laughs> telenovela because I watched them, El Internado, mm -hmm. out of Spain. Very cool. I mean, she's, she she definitely has awesome acting chops. Like, I love the scene where she goes back to Harlan's room and she watches him slit his throat and it like pulls in on her face and it's just so like incredibly horrifying for her. And uh, also the uh, scene where she's trying to find the, I think it's naloxone, the one that, that would counteract the morphine. Mm -hmm. And she just, she gets more and more frantic and she can't find it. And that scene right there, like it's, it's crazy that you can see, you know, someone that's been in the business for, you know, 60 plus years. And then someone who's, to, to general audiences would be a relatively unknown. Um, and, and neither of them is taking the, the, um, the attention away from the other. And then you have Jamie Lee Curtis, who is, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, you have Christopher Evans, literally Captain America playing like one of the most irredeemable piece of garbage characters <laughs> in the whole show. You have Michael Shannon, who we haven't even really talked about this entire episode, but he is, he is so good in the, um, in the whole thing. And he like, he has this like weird, almost like wounded child complex. Yeah, he has a cane. Like it's a physical manifestation of him feeling less than maybe. I don't know. And, <laughs> and, and the idea that he that he just doesn't really understand his son and he doesn't understand how his son kind of fell down, fell down the alt-right hole. Um, <laughs> it is very easy, by the way, <laughs> because YouTube's algorithm just kind of pushes, not necessarily alt-right ideology, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> Well, we heard this on YouTube, but so I love <laughs> that's true. Huh? Uh, <laughs> viewers, comment below how many how many uh, suggested videos it took you to get into an alt right. I'm just kidding, but um, <laughs> the because Chris Evans' like first scene is when he shows up uh, for the reading of the will and he tells mm -hmm. them all to eat shit. Yeah. And I remember sitting yeah. in the theater and like Michael Shannon's like, "I will not eat one iota of shit." <laughs> and it's oh, such a yeah. good like. <laughs> It's just that one whole, line, but he, it's, he took it's the so whole great. family down. Like he just took everybody down I, in one sitting. I like mm -hmm. the way that Benoit Blanc describes to Martha what the what the will readings like. He's like, it's gonna be. Imagine a community theater playing of a tax return. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, okay. So I the one thing that I and and I I can't like prove this. I haven't looked anything up about it. Um, or at least relating to this, 
But the idea of casting Daniel Craig as this like Southern drawl um, private investigator who at the beginning of the movie, he is painted as this hyper competent, like almost mm-hmm. what is the name of the guy from, from like all the Agatha Christie novels? Um, I found, I, I ended up at Agatha Christie's Wikipedia page when researching Knives Out. Apparently it's based on um, some Hercule Poirot, I think is his name. Yeah. So, so oh, yeah, yeah. the, the idea that there's this like detective that is hyper competent, uh, or um, the the modern day Sherlock, if you will, where like if you can like look at someone's like wardrobe and be like, oh, she liked her eggs over easy. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So, so the the idea that at the beginning of the movie, uh, Daniel Craig is just sitting there and he's not really doing anything. He's just kind of listening. He like presses a key on the piano. I was trying to out what that meant i was like is that i was lot? trying to figure it out too so i think that he hit the piano anytime that i i think he did it to um unnerve the person yeah. that, that they were that they were interviewing because i because i was really trying to figure out why i was like well he only does it once per interview and obviously they're all lying but maybe i'd have to go back and look to make sure he's hitting the piano as they're lying but then halfway through the movie we're um <laughs> he's like i don't know who hired me i mean i kind of just like do this for for a fun and like and it's kind of like how you guys said it's descri- it's humanizing all of these characters. Whereas, <laughs> like, yes, there are these tropes of these hyper competent de- uh, detectives who can figure anything out, but also that's not how the real world works. Like everything in this movie that happens is very um, plausible, and mm-hmm. and it's like I was explaining, to Mr. Santos, when we were talking about it before we started recording. This movie is not is not like saying anything new, but it's saying it in a really quirky way. And whether or not you think that Ryan Johnson ruined Star Wars or made the best version that he possibly could have, having as much fun as possible, it doesn't undirect the episodes of Breaking Bad that he made that are um, some yeah. of some of the greatest. Ozymandias, yeah, was really good. Like, I mean, that's uh, did, did that episode win an Emmy? I'm pretty sure it did. But but like he he made the best episode of one of the best television shows of all time. Like he doesn't he's not dumb. Mm-hmm. No, no. And the script took I, I I read somewhere that it took him about five to seven years to iron out the whole script because he he wrote the screenplay for it. Mm-hmm. So very methodical and the details. Once once you go back and watch it over and over again, I'm like, wow, there's so many Easter egg surprises in this film if you connect the dots once you've seen it the first time. But the first time I, I you just thoroughly enjoy the ride. Yeah. I, I think that I think that Ms. Ramirez uh, really points out something important to the, the, the listener here. Um, my, my suggestion would be just watch it for fun once and then watch yeah. it for analysis the second time. Um, because I think you end up getting a lot more, uh, you know, a, a lot more out of it that way. Um, I, I, I think I watched it for the first time when it came out on rental and then, um, and then I watched it again I, the day before yesterday. And then I was like, I didn't take any notes. So I watched it again and like <laughs> took notes, but I noticed that when I took notes, like I, I, when I when I took notes, I wasn't able to see who was talking to whom. Uh, you yeah. know what I mean? And like yeah. it, you, you miss you miss a few you you miss some important aspects of it. You um, definitely have to like pause. Like for my podcast prep, I do a lot of pausing, a lot of typing, and back and forth. And yeah, I mean, this is a really good example of why teachers often encourage their students to reread a passage or a poem. Yeah, for sure. Because the first time you're gonna miss so many things. Because like so, I. 
my husband and I have this thing where I can predict a lot of story endings and movies we watch because it's a lot of stories recycled. I'm sure all of us here can do that. Um, and my husband would just like be heartbroken. He's like, just let me love the story. Mm -hmm. But for for like mysteries or sci-fi or whatever, he's always like, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. There was one he showed me and I'll recommend it. If you like this idea of not being able to predict an ending, it was called um, predestination. I couldn't predict the ending at all. And I ran into that with knives out. The only thing I think I picked up on the first time around was when ransom is talking to Marta, when he gives her all, he gives her the beans and the sausage and makes her like confess what happened. Um, he mentioned something about, you know, Harlan told me you're the only person that beats you, beats him at go more than I do. Why did he say that? And I was like, he told her he's going to put her in the will. And that was the only thing I picked up on. The rest of it was all a mystery. It was so fun. So I, uh, that's, that, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to check out that movie predestination, but, uh, do, have any of you guys ever played go before? <laughs> no, I watched a documentary on it. <laughs> it's on so, so there, there's one, I think it's on Netflix. I don't know. So, Go is a very interesting game because it is so it's a it's got a very 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 high level of skill uh whenever it comes down to it. The only reason why I know that it exists was cuz believe it or not there is a I want to say like a 67 episode anime about Go <laughs> and um and the idea is you can only win if you kidnap your opponent's territory, right? So if there is a like so so let's say that you're playing on the white side. So you have your white piece if the if the opponent can um, put a black piece around every single corner of that um, individual piece, then that piece gets captured. And so I think that that's a very interesting choice for because you know he could have used chess. He could have used um, Chinese Poker. checkers. I don't know. Um, he could have used Yahtzee, but 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 the idea that he used Go, something that is very foreign to America. Um, mm -hmm. I think is a nice little kind of nod like, hey, did you know that that uh, that this game is really, really difficult? And that kind of shows how smart Marta is and also how, you know, cutthroat Ransom was. Well, and I think it's interesting because I didn't know how Go worked, but the idea of like taking territory, so like almost stealing from someone to win, it's interesting right. because when Harlan and Marta sit down before she thinks she's going to kill him because of the injection, He's joking about how Harlan's joking about how she always beats him and he's going to win. And Marta's like, well, it's because you're trying to win. I just create beautiful patterns. So she mm -hmm. ends up winning by like by doing something beautiful and good as opposed to trying to take. And I wonder I wonder if that's significant to the meaning of the, the film. Mm -hmm. Well, it also mimics the the board game clue. Like when I was watching this, I really enjoyed it because it reminded me of the board game clue and it reminded me of the 1985 movie clue, which I enjoyed as a kid. And so it's like, it's layered. You have the go game, you have the, you know, it's reminiscent of the clue game. I mean, it's just, it's, it's awesome. Also, if you haven't seen the, the movie clue, go watch it immediately. It's like one of the best. Oh, it's so good. I, I watched it when I was like 13. I was like, I think this is the best movie I've ever seen in my entire they life. They even make a reference to it in the, like when the conversation between the detective and the lieutenant. I mean, uh, right. he's like, we're in a clue board. Like, they're yeah. in the game. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think now would be a good point to move on to theme. And of course, we can continue talking about the characters and how they contribute to it. Um, but so the question is, what is the universal theme of the selection and what specific scenes contribute to the author's message? I think 
a very easy, easily identifiable theme um, is that like good people who are truthful and kind will be the winners over like hateful people or people who are selfish. Cause you see like with the go game, I just can made that connection. Like Marta wins because she tries to create beautiful patterns. And when Marta um, is talking to Blanc about the fortune uh, after she, they proved that she didn't kill Harlan and all that sort of thing. She asked him, I should help them out financially. Right. And he's just kind of like, well, you, you won this game by doing the, the right thing. Like that's the reason why you have this. And so you're probably going to do the right thing. I think that, I mean, it's like the, the battle between goodness and evil. Right. Right. I think another thing that we can probably pull away with is the, the idea of um, self-made wealth is not, is, is very, yeah. you know, it's a myth. Suspect. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say it's a myth because I mean, Harlan did make his own yeah. fortune because he did. But I think that the idea that um, you can just show up in America, work hard and be successful. I think that that is, it's absolutely uh, a falsehood that, that, that needs to be disrupted. But I think that, um, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Mitch. Um, so I always listen for like when the movie says like, and it's kind of tropey, but when the movie says the title of it at some point in it, um, I think that that's, that's usually probably a pretty important scene in the movie. And in the case of this, um, it's, it's, uh, Benoit Blanc that, that, that says it. And he's talking about the uh, Thromby family, how, the minute that all of their comfort flies away, they're at each other, knives out, uh, beaks, beaks. It's 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 something about like 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 beaks bursting or something like that. But beaks the idea bloody that, or something like that. Yes, beaks beaks bloody. That 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 is what it is. Um, and what's great is that 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 scene where they're reading the will, and mm -hmm. everything goes to Marta, and she's and like she's she's the um, center of, of of the whole tracking shot as she's leaving the house. But they're all talking at the exact same time. They're all having these like very like purposeful words for her, but none of them can be heard into focus because they're all talking at once. Like I had the captions on when I was walking it when, when I was watching yeah. it, and I still couldn't I couldn't discern what they were saying mm -hmm. because the idea that everything that they earned was lost to someone that they don't even really treat as, mm -hmm. as, as um, I don't want to say that they treat her as subhuman, but they don't respect her as much as they respect themselves or each other. Cause I think they're all self-obsessed, but mm -hmm. I think that that really goes to show that no one is, is entitled to anything. And I think that, you know, you, you should be willing to, you know, be a half decent person and maybe just maybe if you're a nurse, um, treat your patients well and maybe you'll get 80 million dollars <laughs> maybe um so i was just going to add on um the thing with how they treat marta at the beginning they often i didn't track every single character that said it but it was a common conversation when marta showed up um for the interview with the police they were like I really wanted you at harlan's funeral but i was outvoted and so many of them said it where i'm like well someone had to vote against her so like none of them wanted to in there that that was the idea especially because um like and they and they kind of stack on that too because um did you notice how every single character said that she was from a different latin american country oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a running joke paraguay uruguay brazil and ecuador ecuador, ecuador. <laughs> yeah well and the other the, so i think that i think that touches on maybe 
perhaps like a sub theme or a smaller theme in the in the movie being that you know it, it, it kind of speaking to the duplicity of human beings like they were all very cool with her and spoke her praises up and down as Ms. Rodriguez said right now at the beginning of the movie. So so much so that, uh, and I, pardon me, I forget the character's names, but Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, character and Don Johnson's character, when she arrived, um, referred to her as, hey kiddo, how you doing? Kind of almost mm-hmm. the way that a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle, and some right. of the characters even say, hey, your family, this and that. But mm-hmm. the moment. <laughs> that the oh, money yeah. goes elsewhere i mean it 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 literally turns knives out you know what i mean like everybody is is uh is after her and i think that really speaks to the interest that certain people um you know really have in ha- have in mind right um, which i think connects to okay so and i'll talk about this with the connections but i mentioned in last week's podcast that i was excited about this movie because my husband and i got into like a 2 hour argument over this film um, and I wanted him to join or at least like record what he had to say, but he's like, you're just going to argue against me. But we kind of came to a conclusion. But I think like the overall theme, I think what Ryan Johnson was trying to get to is like kind of answering the question of what's fair, what's right, what's moral, who's really des- deserving. And the answer I think is that a person should not assume that they're the deserving one. Like nobody should think that they deserve more than anybody else. Cause it's kind of the idea that you don't understand what other people go through um, because there's this separation between Marta and the family, this family who didn't really work hard, thinks they deserve so much. And then Marta who they understand doesn't have as much, doesn't think she's deserving once they've lost something. And so there's like a lot of different scenes um, that shows that, but I like the, the, the contrast between the haves and the haves nots. So Marta's possession, she has a phone with her her screen is cracked and it's an Android phone, so it's cheaper. And then Meg and Jacob have like the brand new iPhones, the, the Max whatevers, they're huge. Um, and even their home. So Harlan's estate is huge, but Marta lives with her mother and her sister in like a tiny apartment where the Wi-Fi doesn't even reach her sister's bedroom. And then the cars, Ransom has a Beamer, and Marta has, uh, I didn't check what kind of car it was, but she could barely go over 60. I think it was a Hyundai, yeah. which, is a, which is a really subtle dunk on, on a foreign infrastructure or for, foreign manufacturing, but you know, it's fine. I, I think it was just an old car. I think yeah. that's all it was. Um, and then I also think, well, okay. So I think this scene that really demonstrates this, like the, the negative nature of a, assuming that you deserve something, I think is when Ransom confesses, when he confesses to like being part of this because he thinks that nothing's going, like he doesn't think that he killed Fran. He does like, whatever, I'll just get off. And so I recorded the scene because I tried to type out all the dialogue and it was too long. So do you guys mind if I play it? Mm-mm. Yeah, go for it. I'm gonna play it. Cause I think this was a really big scene. I'm gonna say this just to you. No cameras, no courtroom, just to you, because you know it's true. We allowed you into our home. We let you watch our granddad. We welcomed you into our family. And now you think you can steal it from us? You think I'm not gonna fight to protect my home? Our birthright? Our ancestral family home? (laughs) 
So what do you have on me? Nothing. What, attempted murder? I get arson for the building and a few other charges. With a good lawyer, which I have, I'll be out in no time. And then you'll see just how much hell I can wreak on your life, you vicious little bitch. And I think I think that scene is so big because you have Ransom representing like this affluent community who just thinks they deserve the world. This house that was bought in the 80s, that's their ancestral right. He even talks about like committing crimes, but his crimes aren't as bad because like I just tried to kill her. She didn't really die and I'll get off with the lawyer. But then we have earlier conversation where his father, Richard, is talking about how immigrants who don't come here legally or properly, they're criminals they should, you know, they should be prosecuted. So their crimes are worse than his own son's crimes. And I think it just really develops this whole idea that like, there's a certain group of, I think everybody falls into it, but there's a, um, we have a problem in this nation of people thinking they deserve more than their neighbor, you know, more than the people yeah. that in their community, there's no understanding. And so when everybody's just taking and taking and taking for themselves, it just, it creates a lot of inequity. And Unfortunately, people are so unwilling to give up anything to help. You know, this person, Marta, all of a sudden she's a bitch who was allowed in her home, but at the beginning she was this hardworking nurse who was so great to their grandfather. It all just switches once they're about to lose something. Yeah, I, 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 well, I think that, that um, and, and not, to, not to be overly repetitious, but I think that, that it speaks a little bit to kind of the way that a lot of us speak out of the both sides of our mouth, mm -hmm. right? We want to criticize the previous, gen uh, excuse me, we always want to criticize the next generation for being entitled, mm -hmm. right? And I hear that, type, I mean, you know, as, as, a, as an adult, I hear that type of speech. As an adult who's, who, who uh, as an adult who works with um, teenagers, I hear that type of rhetoric very commonly, right? Um, I also hear it about other adults. At the same time, the same people, <laughs> who who engage in that type of, of discussion also believe deeply in this very radicalized version of the myth of the self-made man you know um it, it, you know to such an extent that you know they they uh what's it called that they that they themselves do feel entitled you know i you know i raise myself up by my bootstraps well <laughs> you know what i mean therefore i am entitled to you know to this this and this but um I think I, I think that happens a lot in, in our contemporary society. Oh, for Definitely. sure. And that, they even do that. Like once Ransom, it's revealed that Ransom knows he's being cut out of the will. Everybody's like, this will be the best thing for you. This will be so great. I love and it. Laughing because he knows that they're going to be cut out of the will. The minute they're cut out of the will, I love when he drives off. It's his, his only redeemable moment where he shouts out of his car. This will be the greatest thing that happened to you. It's all of you. Yeah. And then one of the characters like, what did he mean by that? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I go ahead. Go ahead, Miss Rodriguez. I think the opening and the closing scene is really good. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh. So the coffee cup, the the first one of the first shots is a coffee cup. That's mm. my house, my rules, my coffee. Um, and it's Harlan's coffee, coffee mug. And then at the, the very last shot is Marta standing in the estate, you know, on a second story balcony drinking out of that mug. And so it represents like this, this 
the top, the thematic topic of power in a really cool way. And she's also holding the coffee cup where, where it, where you can only see my house. Yeah. Oh, really? And she looks down on them. Yeah. From the balcony. <laughs> it's Did so you all have, so when, when, when I, when I first thought about, you know, when, when Mr. Smith first uh, asked me about this and then I saw that Mr. Rodriguez, um, uh, they, uh, in one of her emails that um, that this podcast was framed from kind of like a social justice perspective. Immediately what I thought was, okay, who's the writer and what, um, you know, what background in this type of writing does he or she uh, have? And I, I, I looked up, you know, I, I went online and went on IMDB and, you know, clicked on the, on, on the writer slash, I think he's also a director, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I saw all of the Breaking Bad episodes and the, the Jedi stuff. And then I thought to myself, well, is this based on a book? And you all referenced to Agatha Christie. I guess my question is, do either, you know, do either the director whose filmography didn't really seem to have anything particularly social justice or, you know, the writing that this book is influenced by, are any of those in any way rooted with a narrative that is... Uh, uh, that is critical of these type of issues. I don't think so, but I when I was reading up on the film, um, there was conversation about how people were saying, and I don't remember if it was Ryan Johnson, the writer and director, or someone else, but they basically made the argument that like the the like the core of this film is immigration issues and like power dynamics for right. this nation. Um, surrounded by a detective story. Um, I, yeah. I guess I'm not sure, I don't know Ryan Johnson too well, but I wonder if it was just, he he tried something new. I'm not sure, I don't know. I mean, I was surprised when I watched yeah. Knives Out the first time, I it had been recommended from, um, I can't remember who, they said it was really good and they never mentioned anything about the, like, the political themes within the film. I didn't even know it was gonna be there. I, I mean, I, I and I, right. I, I say this only because as I'm watching this, right, and I'm doing things mentally like picking out microaggressions, uh, you know, including that stuff about how they they attribute a different nationality to Martha every other second, and you know, when when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm trying to analyze, you know, even like character names or whatever, right? Um, I stop myself and I think to myself, okay, well, how intentionally um, critical is is the is, are the author and director being right i mean i think it's pretty intentional but i you know i i always kind of want to I, I always try to do the impossible in the situations and the impossible is to get into the into the writer's mind um mm -hmm. but but on on the other hand you know uh we have the benefit of uh, of media where there's like interviews and uh you know we can study about people's backgrounds which is definitely a skill that we want to promote amongst our you know, amongst our students, because it's really, really important. Um, and I was just wondering if you guys had, you know, had had uh, had picked up any of that stuff. So um, Ryan Johnson also directed a movie um, in the, I think, with the early two thousands called Brick, and it has uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt in it. And that's a that's a detective movie, but it's uh, in high school. Mm. And I've never seen it, but I have heard it's very good. But I have okay, so. I, I have this weird thing with my with my anxiety when it when it manifests that I like to watch video essays that I've already seen before, or I will kind of go back and 
rewatch them because you know you know we we watch TV that we've already seen to make us feel comfortable. But um, one of my favorite video essay essays, he, uh, it's a guy named Movies with Mikey, but but the YouTube channel is Film Joy, and the reason why I defend The Last Jedi so much is because of uh, this entire th- th- this video. And so if you do have the you know forty five minutes after listening to this podcast. Um, you should go look up the, the video in defense of the last Jedi, because he talks about Ryan Johnson and what he used to do. And the idea that he's not subtle, right. But he makes quirky things for quirky people. Um, there's a show on FX, I think called Terriers. And I think that he created that show and I never watched it, but I heard it was really good. But, and I, and I think that that kind of shows a lot of things that he's created. I do like The Last Jedi a lot. It's my favorite of the new trilogy. Um, I realize that me saying that makes me a Disney shill that just uh, (laughs) refuses to acknowledge a movie from the 1970s. I'm sorry, but, um, you know, the the story beats in that movie are, I feel, much more ambitious than than, um, episode seven or nine. I mean, I love J.J. Abrams, you know, God help him, but sometimes he doesn't really know how to pay things off super well. I'll, I'll hold my tongue about the things that I don't like about uh, <laughs> that, that episode. I will say this for anybody who who approaches, um, uh, what's it called, that particular episode critically about the narrative as I do. I will say this, like the cinematography on that movie is spectacular yep. like you know each you know there are so many things in there that could be posters um and now i'll be quiet um and 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 to speak about cinematography again uh it's also important to note that jj abrams didn't write um episode seven i don't think and he also didn't write episode nine so ryan johnson is one of the only other person that has written and directed a star wars film at the like like concurrently is george lucas so so he's kind of in a, in a class of his own on that because i mean if i got the ability to to write a star wars movie what would i do i would explore the rules that exist i wouldn't create you know three new force powers that you have to watch the mandalorian to understand um but again this is not a star wars podcast this is yeah, we're getting on the star yeah, wars but so sorry um, I, I do I do appreciate the uh, cinematography in this too, especially the interviews at the, at the beginning where like Jamie Lee Curtis is like, "Do you think you can bait me? Do you think I'm dumb enough to like to just like lie about like I'm not gonna speak about my family and do that?" And immediately like smash cuts to her husband like he doesn't do anything. He's the worst. <laughs> just stuff like that is really really funny. Well, and I I didn't think too hard about it. I think it might have just been a visual choice, but they do their interviews in front of that sculpture that art piece with the knives yes and so they're all pointing towards them but i didn't think about the meaning of it i did think Which it ended up being fake at the end well yeah when when uh ransom goes to like stab barta in front of the police after she reveals like fran is dead you just confessed to her murder and she vomits all over him because she was lying <laughs> and he like goes to stab her in front like can you imagine the the way you must walk through the world feeling invincible to think you can stab a, a person. in Captain America, Miss Rodriguez. <laughs> he is not acting like Captain America in that movie. I think the only- He did very well. Oh yeah, he was great. Chris Evans is so good, man. Like, 
This is not an Avengers podcast either. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not even talking about. I'm not even talking about his portrayal of Captain America because have you guys ever seen interviews with it? He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be Captain America because he knew that he would be like you know written. Too in, good. Yeah, or, no, not, not that he would be too good, but the idea that you know he is playing one of the most recognizable comic book characters in American history. I mean, just world history at that point. So it's very easy to you know be typecasted in that, and he would also. Like a ten-year movie deal—that's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't so really I, know his real name. I know yeah. he was Captain America. Oh, really? Yeah, Chris Evans. <laughs> He's also in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and his scene is like one of the best ones. And uh, yeah, he he plays like 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 a like a super rich um, actor, and he's very douchey in that too. Very rem mm -hmm. reminiscent of I, Ransom. I really think that 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 quirky is a good is a great way of character the way the author is getting across the themes and and doing what he's doing, right? And I think that what Ms. Rodriguez brought up about Marta throwing up is like the perfect example of it. Like, it's hilarious that the demonstration of this girl's, uh, this woman's innocence, right? And of her goodness is vomit. <laughs> it's crazy. Like it's the moral uh, equivalent of potty humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, I typically hate when TV shows or or films or it, like it happens in music videos where they they use someone's like projectile vomiting as like a comedy stick. I think it's it reminds me of this. It's not very appropriate, but Eminem has a music video where he like plays Michael Jackson. Um, just lose it. Just lose it. And there's like a lot of. I just remember watching that when I was young, and I was like, oh, why? And I hate every time it comes up. But it didn't bother me with Marta. But also they. They only showed her vomit when she vomited all of her ransom. Every other time she vomited yeah. into something or you could hear her like like it was about. <laughs> the last piece, just it was a little little piece, but I thought it I thought it was interesting and I think it was a way of adding to this idea that like the wealthy elite class really kind of makes their success on like the backs of the working class. So like Marta yeah. and um, her family, when they, when the man comes to read the will, I don't know if you guys noticed there was a woman with him and I'm, I assume her to be Latina. I didn't research it, but she just looks like she might be um, she's, you know, brownish skin and she helps him read the will. I'm guessing she's prepared it and he doesn't even know where to read. She has to like keep pointing to it. I just thought it was <laughs> I didn't even pick up on I, that. I noticed that because I was like, oh my goodness, he doesn't know what he's reading. And she kept pointing to it. And then later on when the family is just like thinking of all these legal ways to get Marta out of the will, she's in the corner like sleeping. She can't leave because she just she's just waiting for this, this man who, I don't know how you become a will reader. I'm guessing he's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Something those lines she's just waiting for him <laughs> but then as he's reading he goes yaddy 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 <laughs> yeah i know he's like, oh, i love it yeah. the the sound of mine blah, blah 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 um i'd like to point out the the thing that i like about this whole film you know besides all the themes is it's aesthetically beautiful like yes. the the setting i feel like the house itself was a character, you know, you have this gothic revival house, the stained glass windows, the eclectic ornate outlandish decor of the house. The portrait of Thromby at the beginning where he's not really smiling, but then if you look at it toward the end of the film, once Martha ends up with the house, he's got like this little crooked smirk 
on it, and which is a small detail. He's holding the knife in the portrait. Yes, he's holding the yeah. knife. Oh, yeah. But there's Chekhov's so, gun. <laughs> there's so many details, even in like in the close-ups of the film. Like I, I love the house. And there's this close-up where Martha is before she meets the um investigators on the patio. And she's like listening in to Benoit Blanc talking with Lieutenant. And there's this beautiful close-up where they zero in on her and it's this stained glass window. And I had to pause it because it caught my eye the second time around. And it's of a skeleton holding a skull. Yes. And it looks like it might be some type of an astronomer, like maybe Galileo where he's like looking up at this orbit above them. And I, I am thinking, oh my gosh, if that's Galileo, what was, what was his, like, he, he was based on truth and science and that was his driving force. And that was his, strongest conviction and i thought maybe that might be a parallel to benoit blanc because he sees and benoit blanc sees martha through that uh through that window well i mean i think that the 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 what's it called the the writer and director do a very good job of mm -hmm. taking of setting uh, of of setting a mood by taking basically a trope as, as Mr. Smith would say, that's associated with like every horror film, mm -hmm. you know, uh, everywhere, which is mm -hmm. the creepy old house, right? right I mean, yeah. when when I saw it, the, when I saw that, I think Knives Out came out some uh, sometime around the same time that The Haunting at Hill House finished, mm -hmm. or I can't yeah. remember. I mean, it was in the same year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also there was that other movie about the about the girl who um marries into a family that plays that game of oh, oh, ready or not. Yeah. yeah ready or not i mean it's all around the same time and like that and a bunch of other movies came to mind or the and i take it back the movies themselves didn't come to mind the feeling from those movies was evoked the moment that i saw the first shot of that house you know yes. what I mean? And I, yes. I think I think he brings it to bear very well with how elaborate and how well presented all of those individual screen, all of those individual shots pan out throughout the story. Mm -hmm. It's foggy. It's rainy. It's dark. It's fall. Like it just it it's layered so well in the setting. Mm -hmm. Now go watch the Last Jedi again and realize it's genius, all of you. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, so moving on to our last topic, connections. So what connections can we make between the selection and ourselves or our society? I'm really glad that my parents paid for me to go to college so that I could have a job where I'm not poor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay. So I'll tell, I'll tell you briefly about the fight that my husband and I had. Okay. So we were talking about what the movie meant and we kind of talked about like this idea of like when when per, when presented with an opportunity to create equity will you give up your your privilege and your power and i was like i agree i think that's a big part of this story and justin's like so for example would you give up our house would you let a family live in our house and i got really mad because i felt personally like i felt that he picked our house because we, our previous house was a very small three bedroom house. that had like 1500 square feet. It was pretty small. We were cramped. And I, 
I was pushing to buy a new bigger house and he wanted to stay in our old house because the mortgage was, you know, very reasonable. And he's like, we can pay it off early. We can save more money. And he wanted to stay in the small house. He didn't care. And so I felt personally attacked that I was like, well, of course you pick the one thing you don't care about giving up. But I think it is important for us to really, because I, what I did is I turned into the thrombies. I, I was like, well, we, we paid for this house. We worked for this house. I, I started becoming the thrombies and no, I didn't inherit this house and none of the money that we used to pay for it or continue to pay for it was inherited. But like in a way, I, I'm a teacher. I don't make a lot of money. Our salaries are posted online. You can see how much money we make. Um, but I'm able to live this lifestyle because of my husband's job. And he's the one that kind of, you know, he works towards our situation more than I do. And I, I like, really, I was, I was in that moment of, no, I deserve this. When in reality, my income does not contribute a lot to our bills. Um, and so I think it's just, I think it's important for us to really try to stop thinking about ourselves. Like my argument was like, well, me giving up our house isn't going to create equity in our society. It would help one family. Um, and I could think of it on more like philosophical level of like, well, when when there's a moment where legislation's passed and my taxes are increased to help you know, certain communities, I'm like, I'll be fine with that. Um, but it was more theoretical. But I think it is important for us to really think more about others when like taking action. So like voting or just when considering, you know, what you do when you leave your home each day, like think about how your actions affect others. I think. Yeah. Definitely. And be truly intentional, not like Joni. Right. But I don't want to give up my house. And maybe that makes me really selfish, but that was our fight because I didn't want to, I didn't want to move out of our house. I mean, I think that that's normal. Like, of course, like the whole idea of, of people, arguing with the thing well, well are you, why are you going to waste that food there's kids starving in africa well are, are you going to go are you going to pack it up and airmail it to them or something like that i i do think that you know individual examples of us being selfish are valid in our selfishness but i do think that you know we should be able to preserve some form of selfishness but also be conscious to the inequity of our society like mm -hmm. um I love that the conversation between um, Michael Shannon and Ana de Armas or Walt and um, Walt and Marta, when he's like, if you, if you give us the inheritance back, then we'll make sure that your mom doesn't get deported. And mm -hmm. she's like, so, so you're saying that you would use that money to make sure that she doesn't get deported. Yes. Well, then I'm just going to use that money to make sure she doesn't get deported and you guys can just figure it out. And, and I think that that is um, very telling because there are people in in our society that are i know that this podcast is about social justice but i'm trying to not come across as this radical left person because i i do think the radical left exists but i think that it gets thrown around so blatantly like we, we might as well just start calling everyone nazis um and fascists which again all those words get, get thrown around in the general discourse and it makes me really upset but there are people in this in our society that have been um, given opportunities that they didn't have to work for, and those people before them didn't have to work for, and those people before them didn't have to work for. So the idea of like you know legacy perpetuating inequity 
I think is a valid conversation that, that needs to be had. Now, are there people that show up and work hard and become successful? Absolutely. But also Jeff Bezos is going to be our first trillionaire and his parents bailed him out with a $375,000 loan whenever Amazon went under the first time. Like, so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's important to note, like, guys, work hard, do, do your homework, stay in school, all that stuff is good. But also, like, the world is, you know, kind of disproportionate. And an uneven know, playing field. Yeah. Yes, it, it's an uneven playing field, more, than, more yeah. than anyone would ever care to admit. And I think that it's very easy for us to say that it's unequal when it's not happening to us. Well, there are, there are, mm -hmm. there are systems of vested interest that I would say are committed to propagating the, the, the absolute reality of the myth of the self-made man. You know, I don't think that, I don't think that it's impossible for people to be self-made in this country. And I don't think, I don't think that, you know, I, I think it's very possible people do it all the time, but I, as, as Mr. As Mr. Smith uh, says, it, you know, it's really not an even playing field when it comes to that lifting yourself apart. Um, and, you know, what's it called? The people who protest, I don't want to say protest, the people who speak out, the people who propagate the myth of the self-made man have a vested interest, generally speaking, in that myth's existence. Absolutely. Um, I think this, this movie also speaks a little to the value of work and different types of work that our society gives to, you know, to, to, to our employees, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of a hard comparison because Marta is a is a nurse, which generally, at least in our socialized, is a pretty valued um, profession. However, I mean, if you look at their salaries, which aren't terrible, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, who uh, it, it's a hard judge judgment to make, but you know, are those salaries really on par with with what they do? And I think that very much touches on uh, what's it called, on what's going on right now. We are starting to see a lot more vividly that the people who are taking the greatest physical risk right now, the people that we, that as a nation, have started to call heroes, right? For good reason, are some of the people that we pay the least. Mm -hmm. um, some of these are health workers, but well, I'm also talking about like kids, I mean kids who are working at ATB getting yeah. COVID. Um, what's it called? Bus drivers, trap. You know uh, what's it called? Maintenance workers. You know all. Of, you know all of these people who who really cannot effectively do their jobs from home. Many of them are not just underpaid to begin with, but now in the light of the hazard and in the light of the risk that they take, are highly underpaid. In my, my opinion, right? And I, I mean, I I I can hear. I can hear a lot of my own family calling me a socialist right now, but that, that, that's not what I'm trying to be. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I'm trying to, you know, I would like for people to kind of open their eyes a little bit and at least ask the question, why is it that we assign worth to a person, social worth in the way that we do? Why is it that we assign economic worth by means of wages in the way that we do? I'm not saying that it's all bad. But I am saying that we should revisit that. Oh, you know what I mean. Um, and I think that that this might this movie might touch a little bit on that. I agree for sure. I mean, uh, 
Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say real quick. My husband always tells me I should be paid more than he is. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm, I mean, I think he just loves me a lot, but he also talks about like the, the contribution to society that teachers have versus what he does for a very large company who, I mean, he has gotten raises because they changed his job title and they're like, oh, you, you're out of the range. So we're just going to bump you up like $10,000. That's happened on more than one occasion. It's insane. It's great for me and my family, but you know, like what is he doing for society? And he, you know, he struggles with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My, my whole thing is, oh, I'm sorry, Miss. Oh, no, 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 you had your hand up. Like <laughs> by, 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 by all means in the social contract, that means you go next. Oh, okay. My biggest connection as a Latina woman, of course, was to Martha. Um, mm -hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed that she is a Latina actor who played a Latina nurse in this film. And I liked that she didn't fit your typical typecast of being spicy and sexy and loud. So to me, that was something that was very, very refreshing. Because I often think of Gloria from Modern Family, <laughs> which is, which I also enjoy as a character. Um, we love Sofia Vergara, but Gordon Ramsay needs to apologize to her. Yes. <laughs> um, she's positive. She's humble. She's educated. She, you know, thrives. To, she tries to be a good and moral person in the world and contribute to society. Um, you know, the thing that bothered me, there were a few things that bothered me throughout the film is that, you know, I have a lot of Latino friends from, you know, growing up in Northwest Indiana, where we spoke Spanish first. And then we didn't speak English until we went to school into the school system. And her accent throughout the film makes them assume that she is from a foreign country when it's not her, when she was born here and it's her mother who's the immigrant. And, mm -hmm. you know, there were times like when they made the, I know it was a running joke and I, I, I did laugh when they're like, oh yeah, she's from Paraguay, she's from Ecuador, she's from Uruguay. And it made me feel that society often brushes those people aside. And it, it made me feel that. And one of the things that hit me to the core was when they had that conversation and they're talking and they're like, well, ask her, bring her over. And they wanted to invite her into this uncomfortable conversation about, well, you came here legally, you, you know, and I've been in that situation where people said, well, your dad's from Mexico. You know, did he come here legally? Or, and, and it's like, they put you on the spot to defend your immigrant parents. And I made such a connection to that. And the, like Mr. Santos pointed out so much microaggression also throughout the film. Yeah. And so I, I would I would venture to say that even asking that question is a micro. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. And I've been there where my, you know, my friends have asked me, well, well, you know, what about your parent? And it's like, <gasps> okay. You know, and it 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 hurts a little bit. And and it makes you reflect on, you know, how immigrants are brushed aside or assume that they're foreign to this country because they have an accent. Or even when people have spoken to me and said, well, you don't have an accent and you spoke Spanish first. Like, <laughs> you know? so that was my connection. Yeah, there are, there are reasons for that. I, I remember as a kid, because um, I grew up, I mean, I, I'm, my, my whole family's from Laredo, but I grew up in McAllen. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and much like uh, Ms. Ramirez, my father grew up in East Chicago, Indiana, right? Among, uh, you know, in, straight up in the Midwest, among uh, a large uh, uh, Mexican-American community. Mm -hmm. And I remember some of my, um, many of my neighbors in, 
in actually Edinburgh is where 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 I grew up in Edinburgh, Texas, were um, were Anglo Americans, um, and but more specifically, who had um, who had roots in 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 Ohio and New York and different places across the country. And I don't think that the intention was ever bad, but I do remember comments like where we where where my family compared to families of other Mexicans or other Mexican Americans and in comparison they would say oh your dad's very Americanized mm -hmm. and even back then as a kid it made me uncomfortable you know what yes. I mean yeah. um, I, 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 I have this of, of, of one of my best friend's parents in mind as I recall this people who love me who, you know, who, who, who loved my mom and dad because we eventually got to know them pretty well and we only lived like five houses down. But I remember that comment kind of stinging me a little bit and not understanding at the moment why. Well, now as an adult, uh, what's it called? Um, and after discussions like these, thinking, well, yeah, it's because the implication is that others who are not Americanized, and what they meant specifically at the time is that my dad had no accent because he had grown up, in, or not that he didn't have an accent. Everybody has an accent. My dad had something that was more like a Midwestern accent than a South Texas accent, and as a result of that, he was quote unquote more American or more Americanized, mm -hmm. and that bothers me um, a lot. And yeah. it doesn't just bother me from them; it bothers me because of the attitude that it represents on a very broad scale. Um, right, and and, or, and it or bothers me very well. You know, oh okay. Yeah, and 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 as and as a studier, I mean, I love language, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm dedicating my profession and my and my academic current academic studies to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, language is everything, and to and to or to me, I'm sorry. Um, and to be able to lessen somebody's belonging within a country, not just because of the exact you know, uh, language that you use, but even just because of an accent or a register, mm -hmm. man, that stinks. Like it, it's, it's yeah. something, I, I don't know. And I'm, maybe I'm going way, way off base here because I don't think there's a big Not linguistic issue here in the, uh, in the movie. Although perhaps there is, as you say, Marta doesn't, Marta doesn't speak with a, Marta does not sound like a kid who grew up in in the United States, among a family of immigrants, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Martha sounds like somebody who who you know who grew up elsewhere. And perhaps you're right, Miss Ramirez. Perhaps she's not representative of the character that they're trying to, um, you know, that they're trying to, um, you know, to, to present. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder. If that was just kind of a mistake on the writer's part of like wanting to have a woman who didn't look like she fit in so the family could judge her as an immigrant. Right. Reality mm -hmm. appears that she was born here as an American citizen. And so he just, in his head was like, well, she should have an accent, uh -huh. you know? Well, and, and, and truth be told, I mean, like, how could I put this? Um, it, it, every exposure, every exposure that you have to, to life, which kind of affects and forms a little bit of, of, uh, of your own speech, right? And, um, you know, you know, maybe, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what he was doing there. I don't, it, it, yeah, it could I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, it's fine. It, it could have just been a mistake because like, I'm, I've realized, um, I grew up 
in Metro Detroit. And there is a Mexican-American population in Detroit, but I never had any exposure to it. Um, I've realized now as an adult who lives in San Antonio, which has a lot of Latinos, I've realized that I grew up with Latinos and I just didn't know. I didn't know that Morelis was a Latino name or there was a girl, her, she didn't go by Perez, it was Perez, or I forget Perez or however you say it. Um, there was, right. I knew of Rodriguez and I never even considered, and th that was never discussed. I think they just kind of wanted, as children wanted to fit in and didn't want to talk about it. And actually I just came across, I was scrolling on Reddit, the actor from Psych, his name's his name is James. James um, Roday. I don't know. Uh -huh. Roday. So he's like taking back. Well, he so you can when you're in like the the film industry, you change you can change your name very easily. Um, and he's deciding to change to his real last name, which is Rodriguez. He's from San Antonio, Texas. He graduated from Com Arts. Yeah, and I had no idea. And I think it's really interesting because he explained he changed his name from Rodriguez because when he read, he got a audition for a role and they were like, well, your name's Rodriguez. Maybe you should read for this like drug Lord character. And then when the casting people were like, well, your skin's too fair. He just couldn't get jobs because nobody knew where to put them because of, I guess, assumptions about identity because they see Rodriguez, they assume he must look a certain way. He must fit a certain character. And then when they see him, he doesn't, and they didn't know what to do with him. He couldn't get jobs. And I think that's just wild that that is, it, it's something that's very new to me. I've never had to consider identity. I've never had to consider how people see me versus how I feel. It, it, it's wild. I think it's, it's really interesting. It, it happened to me exactly that way mm -hmm. in high school. In high school, yeah. I was in one up. And did you guys ever watch the movie Lone Star with Matthew McConaughey and Chris Cooper and I no, think Elizabeth no. Pena? It was kind of a, it was a, it was an indie film, right? Well. Mm -hmm. One day at the beginning of uh, one act rehearsal, the uh, the one act coach tells us, hey, gentlemen, boys, um, today there's going to be an opportunity after rehearsal to audition for a role, the role of a teenage Latino male for, uh, you know, an independent film. Cool. Didn't know anything else about it. Um, and I got, you know, of course, we all got excited. Okay, cool. Um, and I auditioned. Now, my best friend actually got cast. And I was literally told that the reason that I didn't get cast or one of the reasons that I didn't get cast was because I did not look Mexican enough. Yeah. It's wild. I don't remember who, I, I don't remember if that was like the, the you know, the person who was, uh, what's it called? Um, who was auditioning or if it was my one act coach who said it, I don't remember how it went down, but I just remember those words sticking in my head and I was furious. And of course my fury even kind of even expressed some of, some of the, some of my own prejudices because I remember thinking to myself, what are you talking about? I speak better, you know, I speak better Spanish than that guy. Um, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Which, you know, which, which which kind of betrays my own you know my own linguistic elitism at the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and but but I, I I just remember being so so mad. I'm like, so you're telling me that because of the color of my skin or whatever other feature that you that, that physical or not that you perceived in front of me, you know, um, I don't fit the role of a Mexican American male, which indeed I am, um, you know, 
Yeah, and then you look at like Rita Hayworth, for example, her real name was Margarita Carmen Cancino, I think, and she had to change her name to get jobs in Hollywood, and she's Mexican-American. I didn't. Leah Michelle had to change her name. She, Who? Uh, the, the main character from Glee. I mean, she's she's been canceled for like a myriad of different reasons, but um, mm -hmm. her uh, her original name is Leah Safardi because um, mm -hmm. she's, she's Jewish. But yeah, they uh, she she had to change her name so that so that she was more accessible. I mean, right. Hollywood has a laundry list of issues, but uh, racial discrimination <laughs> uh, along with uh, sexual deviancy are definitely both two of the higher up ones. Um, right. And I and I'm. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, Mr. Santos, because, I mean, I think it's largely circulated within the Black community that, um, and even just like all all BIPOC people, the idea that you're not acting your race or you're not acting Black enough or or Hispanic enough or anything like that, um, and I and it was really conflicting um, my entire life because you know I've, I I have a white mom and a Black dad, and and I think that having that that disconnect between both cultures caused me to be more you know undesirable by both cultures and and it's and it's a really weird um thing that i have to deal with and and kind of circling back to that to that question that that marta gets brought into with uh, with the whole what do you think about the immigration issue one of my best friends like stood stood with me at my wedding um asked me if i'd ever been if, if I felt as though I had been held back from opportunities because I was black. And I think that that's a very nuanced question. I don't think it can just be answered with it with a yes or no, but I do think that it kind of, it invites a more important dialogue that I think needs to happen. The idea that people that do look different than us um, are acknowledged by the people that hold all the power as not being what they're looking for. And I think that that the, the whole idea of like, Perception versus reality is, I mean, it's a big issue in, in the general discourse of life, but the idea of perception versus reality, when you're looking at how someone acts as a person, I think is very, like, it's almost removed from humanity. Um, there was a Warren alumni who passed away around this time last year. Um, her name was um, Shamora Rogers. And uh, a couple of us went to the funeral, uh, Mrs. Ms. Zablocki, Ms. Mendoza, Mr. Trevino, and myself. And, I, um, and this student was just, uh, she was a delight. She was in the theater program. She was in my creative writing class. Um, but she had a white mom and a black dad. And I remember her being very frustrated about how um, just because she was in theater, just because she, you know, watched anime or played video games, like she wasn't doing things that the black culture really agreed with and so because of that she wasn't black enough and that was something like when, whenever i got up and spoke um because i really was was conflicted on whether or not i was going to share but um i remember speaking like you know she was she was troubled because it's hard to decide like where you belong in society normally but then for for uh, people to to pressure you on both sides like oh you don't act right enough for us or oh you're not acting the way you're supposed to be acting i feel like that is a very it's a way to reduce each other to kind of just these stereotypes. And I think that that's a really important conversation that a lot of people are having now. Um, it's not happening on a global or even a national scale, which I do, I do think needs to happen. But yeah, that's, that's just something that I've, I've been thinking about all summer. But Mr. Smith, I think that I, 
how could I put this? I think that the fact that it, that it is happening on a person to person level is really valuable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something, if, you know, in, you know, in, in the wake of the myriad of um, um, of, 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 of racial issues media over the last five, 10, you know, 15 years, you know, we're starting to have these, these conversations person to person and that. I, I maybe this is just maybe this is just my own personality because I feel like I learn more in conversation with other people. Um, but I, I I feel like if you start by examining yourself a little bit and, and examining others as well in conversation with a person that you know, love and respect, that really makes a much different effect than if you watch a conversation on, you know, a, a, a TV show or a, uh, what's it called, a, a talk show or a podcast or, you know, anything else. I think that it's, you know, that that the, that, that question that your friend asked you, um, while might be quite uncomfortable, if it came from a place of sincerity, is an important conversation to have, right? Um, for all parties involved. I all, all I mean to say is that honest, truthful, well-intentioned, uh, and authentic conversations between people about not just the race issue, but a number of other issues are, are, are quite important. And it comes, it comes down to, hey, you human, is there anything that I human? You know, I, I don't mean to like standardize, yeah, standardize this, but like, you know, it, What's it called? If there's something that's hurting you, I want to be aware of it. Period. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that I think that we should all approach each other in 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 the same way. Yeah, I agree. Like my family, my immediate family is talking about topics we definitely brushed over just because they would get uncomfortable or we'd get into an argument. Um, and like my dad has fully, he's been like, I'm learning so many things I didn't know about the world. And like, I mean, because I was raised under this pretense that my immigrant grandfather from Ireland suffered so much because of, you know, the, the rejection of the Irish people, which, which did happen. Um, but on the other hand, on my, my, so that was my, my paternal grandmother, her father was an immigrant from Ireland. Um, but my grandpa, his ancestry goes all the way back to colonial times. One of my ancestors is Rufus King. He like knew Alexander Hamilton. I didn't bring it up in the last podcast. He's in his auto, he's in the biography about Hamilton. They wrote, um, he signed the constitution. He ran for president. Like my family has a lot of like established privilege because of just being in places of power and we lost like some of our wealth because of the stock market, but my family still held on to a lot of stocks and, um, you know, helped my parents when they had financial struggles. Like the, the poverty that I experienced was only like temporary because my extended family was able to help us out so much. Um, so much so that my uncle paid off all of my loans that I graduated with. And I think it really starts with Rufus King being so established and just kind of, you know, generation after generation being really successful people. Well, and think of, you know, I, I, I have this conversation with, with other teachers frequently. Think of the legacy 
Now, let me let me bring it down a little bit more. Think of everything that has to go right for a student to write a an effective persuasive essay by the time they're a senior, right? I mean, there's there there's a number, of, and 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 judging this by the standards that are usually judged that that that, that, that um, universities and other institutions of higher learning use for that. I mean, for starters, you have to you have to be able to speak in an academic and professional register of uh, of the English language just off the bat. Um, and the more you've been exposed to that, even as a child, the better you are at it. Mm. Um, and oftentimes, it's the houses of privilege that enculturate kids into those types of language practices well before they ever reach high school. Um, and I am making no comment about how good or bad standard American English or any other registers of English are. All I'm saying is- No, nah, let's do it. <laughs> no, no, all I'm saying is that the, the language practices that we tend to value, right? Are the same ones that uh, that that are that that are used in the in the homes of, of the of the privileged class. Oh, um, and and but of course that's built on a a legacy, you know, of of uh, of that type of enculturation, which leads back to it's not an even playing field. No. Mm -hmm. Did you know, it, it wasn't that long ago, but it's no longer a, te uh, a question on the SAT, but one of my professors in college showed us this and it totally changed my perspective on the idea of like standardized testing truly being an aptitude test, um, like the SAT or ACT really, because, and I mentioned it to my students, what's the greatest indicator of how, how students will perform on standardized testing? It's their socioeconomic status. And I think the questions now you can't see is so obviously biased, but there was a question at one point on the SAT test that asked if, you know, a family has, you know, a mother and a father and a, a son and a daughter, and they have three bedrooms, what, who sleeps in what bedroom? And the correct answer was the mom and the dad sleep in one bedroom, the brother and the sister sleep in one bedroom, and the third bedroom is saved as a guest room. And that, that like the idea of guest rooms comes from the elite class um, most Americans don't have space for a guest room. And to even know that you should put the, the boy and the girl together instead of giving them their own rooms, that it's, it's so bizarre. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, and, it, it, there, I and there's a whole slew of issues, you know, related to that. Our, you know, our, our standardized scientists, science tests, really science tests. Well, they are for, speakers of that, um, native speakers of that particular language, but for, for a student who does not speak uh, English as their first language and is, is still at an emergent stage of English proficiency, a science test is really a reading test. Mm -hmm. yep. I think even yeah. for a native speaker, I've looked at the released biology star test and I'm surprised by how much could just be, how much, you know, how many conclusions you could come to by just reading the information given. That's correct. Right. right, right, right. All right. Any last thoughts about Knives Out? It's a really good movie. Fun to watch. It is very fun to watch. I somehow happened upon a novel I'm reading that connects to it, like I have for almost every movie. I'm reading The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. I've heard of that. It's a detective, it's a, a detective um, 
novel and the narrator and the main character is a teenage boy with autism. Um, and it's really, really cool. And it's like a, it's just like Knives Out where it, it appears to be a detective story, but then it becomes so much more. Um, I'm not finished, but it's, it's, it's a fun read so far. Very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, next week we are going to watch and discuss District Halo. Nine. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what? Oh no, no. I, I said I said Halo because um, <laughs> I largely believe that the District Nine was was supposed to be the Halo movie. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, we're gonna watch District Nine, which is streaming on Netflix. I have not watched it in a long time, but one of my education professors in college assigned this as our weekly reading, and I remember the conversation just being very good. So I wanted to come back to it. I've never seen it, so this will be good. The one in South Africa, right? Yes. I've, I've yeah. never seen a Neil Blomkamp movie, so this will be good. Hmm. Yes, and it has aliens, though. It's sci-fi as well. So, all right. Well, we will see you guys next week. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Mr. Sanchez, for joining us. I thank you all. So go watch Knives Out again. Uh, go watch In Defense of the Last Jedi. And uh, remember that that it's so easy to just reduce everyone to um, one to, to one whole, but remember that humans are nuanced and we'll see you nuanced humans next week. Stay safe. Uh